The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. What makes a faithful servant of God, a faithful minister? One that a church should listen to and follow. Or if we're going to turn the question around and make it personal, since all of us are ministers, as we talked about often, all of us are servants of the Lord in, in some sense or another, what would make me or, or you, what would make us be faithful servants, faithful ministers of God? Last week in verses 12 to 14 of this first chapter in 2 Corinthians, we saw the Apostle Paul addressing this question by discussing interpersonal integrity. It's a, very, it's a very real issue for him because he is currently under attack along these lines from a vocal minority, a, a strong and influential minority in the congregation there in Corinth that did not want to follow Paul that did not agree with him and and was trying to drive in a wedge between him and the majority of the congregation there by raising this question of his sincerity and integrity and saying, he's not a faithful minister, don't follow him. Paul addresses that suspicion head on because it isn't true and because he wants to clear it up so as to close up with them, to remove any sense of a wedge and close up with this church, be tight with them, not just... One day in the future, he talks about how everything will be known one day in the future. But I want that now. I want integrity in me and integrity in you and us knowing that and tight with each other now here. There'll be great benefit in that. And it comes about a critical point from last week in verse 12. Interpersonal integrity, relationship that's full of integrity and sincerity comes about when gospel renewal has happened inside of a person. When God's grace changes a person on the inside and moves us to love others, not self, and moves us to depend on God and not our own techniques and our own manipulations and our own working of situations so as to protect ourselves. God's gospel of grace moves in and moves us then to trust him and love others, to live with sincere integrity. That was last week, a piece of being a a minister worth following. And he continues on with that now this week. Similar theme here, he's still defending his own conduct. And as he does that, what he's going to show us, what we're going to see here, something about him and something that we should be like also, but he's going to tie this in, the faithfulness of a servant with the faithfulness of the one served, faithfulness of God. This passage, verses 15 to 22 is part of the defense, but it sort of feels like it veers off into a tangent to talk a whole lot about God, much more than about Paul. And there, there, is, there is definitely backstory here about faithful minister. We'll, we'll touch on that throughout. Faithful ministers, as we're going to see, are like the faithful God, Christ-centered ministers constantly concerned about and constantly talking about what God has done for us in Christ. That's the message that God serves up. That's the message that faithful servants serve up. It's what he wants spoken in the church because that's the message that gives us life. What God has done in Christ. That's the gospel. Not what we do, what he's done faithfully for us. So Paul's going to talk about that. We're going to, we're going to talk about that today in, in this passage. Let me read it all and then make two observations from it. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. 
For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Two observations, here's the first. God has proven himself faithful in Christ, God the Son. God has proven himself faithful in Christ, God the Son. This comes from verses 18 to 20, a little bit down in the passage, but that, that appears in a particular context beginning in verse 15. I mentioned this last week, but what we find here is the situation that's being used by Paul's opponents in Corinth, trying to drive in that wedge, the change in his plans of travel. He writes, beginning of verse 15, because I was sure of this, meaning that in the past at some point I was sure, I had a confidence that you understood me and respected me and, and you were proud of me as I am proud of you. And be, because of that confidence that I had, I planned to come from Ephesus to you in Corinth, and then from you to Macedonia, and then back from Macedonia to you, and then have you send me on my way to Judea. That was the plan. Thinking he was tight with them, he was going to use Corinth as a base, a ministry, a mission base, which would be of great benefit to him and to them, as he says they would get a, a double dose of grace. They'd get him twice. They'd get him staying with them for some period of time on two different occasions as he passed through, and then they'd get the honor of being his sending church, so to speak, out of Greece, sending them north and then sending him back to Jerusalem. It had been an honor, it would have been a blessing to them, that was the plan. And he says, when I made that plan, was I vacillating, was I just wishy-washy telling you what you want to hear? Yeah, I'm going to come see you, yes, because that's what you want to hear, but not really, I mean, no, I'm not coming to see you. Was, that, was I vacillating when I made that plan? And when I changed the plan, was I vacillating? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? The obvious, clear, implied answer is, of course not. Things change for people operating in the world, of course, but there's nothing blameworthy about Paul in this. Now, when he made the plan, now, when he changed the plan, didn't carry out the old one. That's his conclusion of verse 18. Our, meaning my, word to you has not been yes and no, fickle, two-faced. As surely as God is faithful, that's not the case. And right there when he says that, brings up the faithfulness of God that begins to turn it towards our point this morning. He mentions the faithfulness of God and sets his own faithfulness right to it and ties it up tight to it. Now, as I said, the backdrop behind this is, is all Paul's defense of his own faithfulness. And as you'll see, he comes back in verse 23, which we'll see next week, he comes back to that and calls this faithful God as a witness. And so he's still arguing about how he's been honest and full of integrity and, and they can trust him. It's still behind the scenes, but what he's bringing up here in the front now is, I'm faithful because God is faithful, and God's the one who called me to be his apostle. God's the one who used me, and you've seen the ministry that God has accomplished through me. So really, you're looking and evaluating me by looking and evaluating the faithful God. God's faithful. Let's see how Paul explains that. Verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, pause there for a second, Back in verses 1 to 3, at the very beginning of the book, we had the opportunity to, to think about something, the nature of God, that is the three-in-one nature of God. The language in those verses, like much language in the Bible, goes through great pains to make a couple things clear. First, 
two distinct persons, beings, are being spoken of. God the Father, and it says there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Two distinct persons. The language is trying to keep them clear in our minds so that we see two. And then also so that we see one. Because both of the both of the persons are described with terminology and titles that are both divine and there is only one God. Obviously, God the Father, that's divine. But the Lord, Jesus, Lord, all through the Old Testament, which of course is Paul's context, Rabbi Paul's context, all through the Old Testament, Lord is divine. Lord is the God of the Bible. And so he wants to make clear repeatedly, there are two, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who are both the one God, divine, and there is only one true God. Two and one. We saw that repeatedly back in the beginning of this book, and even in verse three where we saw God the Father, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus, Father and Son, describing for us Again, the two who are one, describing how they relate in regards to the creation. God picked these terms, Father and Son, to make clear to us how God the Father and God the Son, the first person and the second person of the Trinity, how they relate in regards to the creation. They relate like this in regards to the creation. The Father, like any father, thinking, planning, and ordaining, ordering, and the Son, like any son, hearing and obeying and submitting. Two distinct, both God, but like this with regards to the creation. We saw all that before, and here it comes again. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, Two distinct, both God. And actually, we're going to find the third person of the Trinity appearing when the Holy Spirit comes up in the following verses. This is how the Bible talks about the Trinity. It's laced all through this chapter. But there's never a, now let me discuss the Trinity with you. It's always, this is how the triune God works. Father, Son, and Spirit. Here it is. This Son, the Lord Jesus, he is the one whom we proclaimed. Paul makes clear now. We is usually just him. There are actually three of us. You know, there were three of us there in Corinth for that almost two years. The three of us, we proclaimed him. Or more literally, he was proclaimed through us. More literally, that's what the sentence says. And when you say it like that, you hear a little subtle nuance. Paul, of, of course, they spoke. They proclaimed. They preached. Sure. But he's saying, actually, we were mouthpieces. Someone else was proclaiming through us. If you go to the orchestra and you say, the horns sounded great. Well, the horns are metal. They didn't sound like anything. The people playing the horns were playing through the pieces of metal. Paul spoke. Well, Paul didn't actually say anything. Someone was speaking through Paul. Someone was proclaiming through him God. God the Father proclaimed through Paul the Son. And he who was proclaimed was not yes and no, but in him, it's always yes. Which means what? Well, next verse, verse 20. For, what I mean is, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. All God's promises, picture it like this, all God's promises are working like in one gigantic funnel, and they are all funneled down to one person, Jesus, God the Son. 
They all flow towards and find their fulfillment in Christ. There is not, yes, that promise was fulfilled in Christ, and no, that one was not. No, that one wasn't either. This one was, uh uh-huh, that one was too. It's not some of the promises, all the promises. And it's not, sometimes I keep my word faithfully in Jesus. Sometimes I keep my word faithfully in Muhammad. Sometimes I keep my word faithfully in just secular, humanist, irreligion behavior. No. All the promises of God are always kept only in Jesus. They all, like a gigantic funnel, they all lead to him. When God promised to solve the curse of sin and crush the head of the evil one way back in Genesis 3, that promise is pointing towards and yes, answered. In Christ, come in the flesh, crucified, paying for sin. When he promised to provide an ark to shelter Noah and all who would be with and like Noah, believing God's word, that was actually pointing to, funnel, Jesus, who is the shelter for all who seek refuge in him, the shelter from wrath poured out all around When he promised to provide a sacrifice, a lamb to take away sin, Jesus. A priest who could be the mediator in which God, where God and man meet, Jesus. A place in where they would meet, a temple, uh, Jesus. The promises of God are on every page of the Old Testament, in every story of the Old Testament, all across all the ages of the Old Testament. And I'm not just talking about the big prophetic promises like the couple that I mentioned, every hope that God offers us to think about and invites us to depend on, every hope, every grace, every mercy, they all come to us and are answered by terminating in the person of Christ, so they're all either pointing directly at him, or, listen here closely, are ours to experience and enjoy They are yes to us because we are in Christ, in union with him. Here's what I mean. Take the easy and obvious one first, like a couple that I just mentioned. I will send a king in the line of David to deliver my people. Jesus. Funnel, obviously becomes Jesus. Lots of kings, lots of kings, lots of kings. Jesus, the king in the line of David who delivers. Okay, now think about this. And this may lengthen our time here a little bit, but I take your Bible and turn to Psalm 144. I had originally written in another psalm, but I crossed that out and wrote in something else because I did this this morning. And the point in doing this here is that it's on every page in almost every verse in the Bible. So you can do this. I did this this morning. You could almost do it like this. Boom. What do you find? Well, I'm going to do it from Psalm 144. You could do it lots of places. Look at Psalm 144. I'm just going to look at verses 2, 3, and 4. So the promise, I'm going to provide a king in the line of David. That's, that's an obvious, like a prophetic, a forward-looking promise. You see, that's Jesus. Okay, now read Psalm 144. Start in verse 2. He is my steadfast love and my fortress my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. Verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Verse 4, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. You read that passage. Recall from last week how I mentioned that an old Puritan said we need to read all the passages, look for the promises, and squeeze the life out of them. Okay, you come to these verses. What do you you find there? Promise after promise after promise, and I'm not talking about verse 2. I am talking about verse 2, but not just verse 2. 
You read 2, 3, and 4, and of course you could read on further. People, man, like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. We are frail and small and simple and gone. We are weak and vulnerable in this world. And God, verse 3, Lord, you, here's the promise, regard man. You look upon, you think about, you care for man. And when you look upon and you think about and you care for man, I, I am sure you have said, you have promised, I see a promise in that statement. It's, it's not actually expressed as a promise, it's expressed as kind of like a cry. Oh Lord, what is man? You read it differently as a promise. He looks upon and he thinks about it and he regards. And he looks upon, he thinks upon, and he regards people in their frailty and their vulnerability and says then, looking upon you and thinking about you and caring about you, I will be a refuge for you. I will be a shield. I will be a deliverer. I will be a stronghold. I will be a fortress. And I will look upon you and think about you in steadfast love. That's verse 2. You go back through it and you find a statement there that is, check, yes, affirmed in who? Christ. 144 verses 2, 3, and 4 are a funnel leading to Jesus. Jesus, in Christ this is fulfilled. Jesus is the one who is frail and weak and vulnerable. Jesus is the one regarded and looked upon and thought about and cared for. And Jesus is the one that God the Father said, I will be a deliverer to you. I will be a shield to you. I will be a refuge to you. I will love you with a steadfast love. I will pull you out of all trouble and despair. And I will deliver you, Jesus. Well, that's not about me. Yes, it is if you're in Jesus. Like air in a balloon, you get carried along to wherever Jesus goes. And this is the Father looking upon, regarding, delivering the Son and you in him. All the promises of God, which are in all kinds of statements like this, all of them are focused like a, a gigantic funnel. The, the one person who is the bottleneck, who is the very tip of the funnel, is him and then us under him, all in him. All the promises of God come to Jesus, either directly as there's going to be a king, it's him, or indirectly as here's a hope offered, fulfilled in him, and for us who are in him. You could do that in the next verse, and the next verse, and the next verse, and on and on and on and on. And if you will do that, the Bible lives for you and you see the faithfulness of God to Christ and to you in him. That is how life comes from this book to you. You stop reading about facts and you start reading about facts that are actually promises to Christ and me in him. All the promises, whether they're worded like future-looking promises or just offers of grace and mercy, they are all, yes, faithfully kept by God, not by us. We are faithless. He is faithful. And only and always answered in Christ. There is no other message from God. Christ is the message. Middle of verse 20 then, back in 2 Corinthians. Middle of verse 20, which is why through Jesus, picture this now, Paul's looking back up through the funnel neck. So you got the funnel, the neck of it comes to focus on Jesus, all who are in Jesus, and this is now Paul looking back up the funnel this is why now, through Jesus, Paul's looking there, speaking and encouraging and inviting all the others that he's ministering to. Through Christ, we preachers, 
say our amen. So be it. That's what amen means. Yes, so be it. Back to God, to the glory of God. He focuses all his promises on Jesus, and they come to us through Jesus. And so we preachers look back through Jesus to God the Father and say, Amen, praise be to the Lord, and invite others to come, look back through the funnel, and do likewise. Glorify God through Christ. We can't, what Paul means, we can't announce anything to God's glory that skips or bypasses Jesus. We can't say, never mind Christ, I'm going to praise God some other way. Because God would then respond, what are you talking about? Everything I've ever done, everything I've ever promised, everything I ever mean, everything I'm ever going to do is all through Jesus. There's no other way to come to me. I have no other message for the humanity. There is nothing else that I have said and nothing else that I have done. I am Christ-focused in my word, says the Lord. I am Christ-focused in my action. And any faithful minister must likewise be Christ-focused in life and in word. And any faithful Christian and any faithful church, Christ-centered in life and in message. Because there is no other message from God to the world. He proclaims no other message, nor must we. And that's how you can identify and define faithful ministry. It's, it's worth remembering Paul's context here. It seems like he's left the context, but he's still on that context because he's trying to say, that's what I've done. I'm in line with him. It's worth thinking about that so we can think a little bit about how to apply this. Now, obviously, I think there's an obvious application that we should think about all of the Bible and see how all of it is centered on Christ, understand how to read it better in a Christ-centered way, and then praise God for it to his glory. There's that application. But Paul's, one of his underlying points here is, this is how you can identify and be a faithful minister of God. Is this the message? Christ as the focus of everything. God focuses his ministry and his message on Christ. We must too. That is the biblically defined second person of the one triune God. Anybody can use the word Jesus. Anybody can use the word Christ. We're talking about the biblically defined Christ, the Lord Jesus. Distinct from God the Father and God the Spirit, one, one God. Christ-centered in living and in teaching and in preaching and in praying. That's the focus. He's the focus. Not even the promises or their desired effects and certainly not the works that we are to do and will do. Fo being focused on Christ like this will move us like we talked about last week. It will change us on the inside and will lead us to live lives of integrity, but the integrity itself is not the focus. The works that we are to do are not the focus. Christ is. And this, incidentally, is one easy way to spot a non-faithful false teacher. A person who gives, at most, lip service to Christ or really talks about a different Christ and the main focus is on what you are to do so as to please God. That's how all the world's religions work. And they think they are serving God or being good people in the world 
But God's focus is on Christ and on what God has done in Christ, not on what we do. On what God has done. He is the yes from God to us. He draws all of our attention. And when we draw our attention to him and focus on him, what we see then is something of God's marvelous and faithful nature who has operated over a long period of time. The promises of God reach back a long time and are wide. And through all of that has been very persistent and very patient, very tenacious in saving a people for himself in Christ. And he has not left us, but remains with us, still working in us. Which leads us to the second point. Here's the second observation. God continues to prove himself faithful through the ministry of God the Spirit. God continues to prove himself faithful through the ministry of God the Spirit. In verses 21 and 22, the... the, the, the focus, the, the work of God moves from the theological and the eternal. We we're talking about reaching way back to all the promises and moving them onto Jesus. It moves from that onto Christians personally and what God has now done in us by His Spirit. Four things, which are really one thing and three things. It says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. This comes first, and it, it's the one thing that's set apart from the other three. Paul and company with the church, so he's got in view all Christians here. It's clear about that. God has done something with us, his people. He establishes us, or you, you might say confirms or firms up. And the grammar of this first statement underlines that this is an ongoing action. This is a continual thing. He establishes it in an ongoing way. He continually makes sure. Us, that is you, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, continually. You are solid and sure in Christ. You know, there's the funnel in Christ. There's you. There's you in Christ. So he's not just talking about the day you became a Christian. There was a day when in a moment you were placed in Christ. You were planted in Christ. You, that, that happened when you became a Christian. But that's not the moment that he's talking about, that once and done thing. All those promises became yes for you in Christ in that moment, and moment after moment today and tomorrow and next week, he's continually assuring you. You were planted there, and it's like every day he goes and he stomps on the dirt around where you were planted just to kind of firm you in there. You're right there in the mouth of the funnel, tamped down, firmed up, not by human statements or assurances, but by God himself doing it. You stand established right there. And that's true whether you feel it or not. Every day, that's true. He's not letting you get away. He's firming you up there. You are in the mouth of the funnel in Christ by the work of God. God did that, it says. God established us. And he does it using the next three things, which are different. They are not ongoing. They are settled and accomplished. It says that he has anointed us. A term and an image from priests and kings. God often would anoint with, with oil, and other people would as well anoint with oil. What they were trying to symbolize there was something special has come upon this person. A unique power or a unique blessing or prestige and equipping maybe 
Well, God is saying that I have anointed you, I have hallowed you, I have made you special and precious. I have poured out on you my smile, my blessing. He has anointed, and he has put his seal on us. Term from the business world. Seal was a stamp pressed into wax, and it would leave an imprint. You, often it was with a ring or with, with a coin or, or some sort of a, of a carved image, and it would leave an imprint that identified ownership, forbidding others from touching it or taking it or intruding or in any way messing with it, disturbing what didn't belong to them. So a seal declared shows who owns this sealed thing? I do. That's mine, says the Lord of you. All of his people, he has put a seal on them, claiming ownership and saying, I own that. Don't mess with it. Don't disturb it. That's mine. And he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That last word, guarantee, is also a word from the world of business or commerce. Matches what we might sometimes today call earnest money. Like, like today, some financial transactions back, transactions back then would be started at one point, but then actually completed some other time. Maybe you'd sign a contract and, and you'd deliver the, the payment later. And this guarantee, this, this earnest money, was a promise, I'm going to pay the agreed-upon price. I will, because um, I'm not going to walk away from this money. I'm not going to forfeit this money. Here's my guarantee. Here's my, my promise. God has guaranteed, God has paid to us a guarantee that is not money and it is not just his word, it is his spirit living in our hearts. Evidence that he will give us the entirety, all those promises funneled to Jesus. And they all come to us and they are yes to us. But you know, of course, that all of them are not all completely fulfilled yet. He is a shield to us, sure, but we still suffer. He shields us from some of the suffering, and he shields us through the suffering, but he hasn't yet shielded us from all suffering completely such that there is none. Well, I promise you, I will shield you completely one day. Every one of the promises in some way you could say that it already has happened, but it has not yet fully, completely, totally happened. And in the middle there, God says, here's how I promise you that I'll keep the rest of it fully and all. I give you my spirit. I give you God the spirit, the third person of the one triune God, to live within you. And I will not walk away from myself. I'm faithful. I can't disown myself. I, I have claimed you. I have sealed you. You're mine. I have anointed you. I have filled your heart with my spirit. I will not walk away. Everything that I promised, you have it in part now. You will have it in full one day. I swear on myself. This is the ministry of the spirit in the Christian done by God, and it happens once and then is applied every day thereafter as he tamps down the soil to firm you up and confirm you. I'm his. I'm, I'm in the promises. I'm in Christ. The spirit alive in me, moving around in me, producing life in me, changing me, growing me, growing up in me the fruit of the spirit, moving me into a, a spot where I understand God and see him better, moving me away from sin and away from distraction. The spirit alive and at work in the Christian testifies you are his and the promises are all going to be yours fully one day. God through Christ by the Spirit says yes and we by the Spirit through Christ say amen to his glory. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. God promises to bless through Christ and lives it out in us by the Spirit, affirming we are His. 
And we, by the Spirit, back through Christ, say, Amen, so be it, Lord, to the glory of God. That's what God has done. God the Father, Son, and Spirit has done in you, if you're a Christian. That's the Christian life now and forever. And notice this passage, how it presents all that. It's just there. There aren't any commands in it. I, I, I think that we, we can look at it and we can understand, okay, that he's arguing about what a faithful minister should be so I can, I can discern some things and I can know some things. I should want to be like that. And clearly there's, there's a call to worship God and to praise him along these lines. Yeah, I can see that too. But it's mostly just stated. This is the work of the faithful God. Know it. What do I do with that? Know it. Whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever is noble and true, set your mind on this, on things above. This is your life, and you have it in part now, but one day Christ is coming, and when he comes, everything that is actually your real life will come with him. I'm, I'm mashing together a bunch of passages to try to show you the consistent message of the New Testament is Know this. Sit in it. For your joy now. For hope now. For a vision of the future that doesn't get you stuck in the here and now and, and bound up in what's wrong here, but let you see what is good and glorious and let you worship God who is your life now. Know this. The Bible is, I'll say this, this might sound odd, is remarkably uninterested in what we can do. It's remarkably uninterested in what we can do. Apart from him, we can do nothing, in fact. It is supremely interested in what God has done the good news. And it calls all of us to know this, to realize this for our good, for our joy, and for his glory. And that'll produce a different you, and you'll live differently and do other things for sure. But it's remarkably uninterested by comparison in that. To live a Christ-centered life, to have a Christ-centered heart, to think with a Christ-centered mind would bring glory to God and joy to you. It would produce a different life for sure. But it would first make you different and bring him glory. So I want to close by asking a question here. What about when you don't feel much about this? Because it, it is certainly possible and, and common for me to say that and for Christians, and I put myself in that category too at times for sure, for Christians to say like, yeah, I already know that. I mean, I already do know that. And frankly, I feel some combination of miserable, depressed, flat, and empty. I, I know, I mean, I pretty much, I think I pretty much know most of what you already said today. And I feel some combination of miserable, depressed, flat, and empty. So, what do I do with that? What, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, the first thing you do is you realize this is true whether I feel it or not because it's what God has done. 
for the Christian. Accomplished. But we've got to do something with that because it is far better, it is far better to feel that than just to know it and live a life that is distinct from any experience of it. We, we would far, we'd be far better off to feel it. And someone once said, God is more glorified, God is most glorified in us when we are satisfied in him, not just know we should be satisfied in him. So what do you, what do, you do with that? Well, stop, take yourself in hand, and realize very often what we accidentally do when we feel some combination of miserable, depressed, flat, and empty, we're in the funnel, there's Christ, we're here at the bottom of that funnel beneath Christ, right in Christ, and what we often mistakenly do is we look the wrong direction in the funnel. We look not this way, but we look out this way at all the effect of all the promises and we try to cheer ourselves up with the things. We try to fill ourselves up with the promises themselves. And I'm not talking about sinful things. I'm talking about good things. I'm saying we look at a life that is full of blessing from God and we attempt to find life in the blessings. We look to people, we look to activities, we look to relationships and community and work and the pleasures of life and we attempt to find something that will chase away miserable, depressed, flat and empty. Some purpose in my work, some delight in this pleasure, some joy in this relationship. You're looking the wrong way in the funnel. There's good in front of you. You see it all, and, it, and you recognize that it comes from God, but there actually isn't life in those things. We take ourselves, and we look back up the funnel at God. And we reckon these things as good evidences of God indeed, but these things are not life themselves. And you know it when the marriage in which you found such joy ends in his death. Whoops. I lashed myself to something that just sank rather than used that as evidence to point me back up the funnel at a God who is good. These things are, are good gifts from God and good evidences, but they are not our life. Our life is him The first thing you have to do when you find yourself some combination of, of flat, depressed, empty, is say, where's my, where's my attention? Where am I seeking life? And often you'll find I'm seeking it down funnel rather than up. Look back up the funnel and what you see there by the Spirit's work in you is a God who is gracious to forgive sinners like me, who spend so much time looking down funnel at the things and down funnel at the things that I do. That is self-centered, folks. It's sin. We need to call it what it is and say, that's sin and that's self-centered. That's me focused on making myself feel happy with the things that God's given me. I look back up and I find a God who forgives me of that and who graciously still gives good gifts to enjoy and who says, but don't trust them, trust me. I'm still for you, I'm still yours, you're still mine. We look up the funnel at God and pray, pray, pray that the Spirit of God ministering in us will tamp down the soil again today and confirm in my heart I belong to him and, and show me when my eyes delight in him. Not just truth that I should know, but actually delight in him. If the Spirit of God does not do that, then at the end of the day, I am helpless. 
All that is left to me at the end of the day is just the stuff of earth. Miserable, depressed, flat, and empty, what do you do about that? Ultimately, what I'm saying is look to God and pray for sight. That doesn't sound like a real solid, sure answer. Well, it is and it isn't. It is because it is the answer, but it isn't because there's actually nothing that I can make happen. There's nothing you can make happen. We're just people. We are dependent on God, the Spirit, to move in us. And by His Spirit, the faithful God will do it. He will establish us again today. His Spirit will live in us and confirm, will show us the promise, I'll give you everything, I'll give you myself. You're mine, I own you. I anoint you with myself, my presence, my smile. He will do that in us if you look to him and pray. That may sound light. It's actually full of hope. It casts ourselves on the faithful God and says, you must do it. I need you. And he's the God who's dependable. We can trust him. Let me pray. Lord, in the end, we need you. We need you to make the Christian life live in us and run in us. From time to time, we all struggle with that. We all struggle with it, Lord. Will you please make life sprout up and blossom in your people. Please draw our eyes back to you and give them sight. Thank you for your faithful work on our behalf, for your faithful work down through the ages to fulfill all your promises in Christ. Draw our eyes to him. Give us life. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.